You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi, and this is podcast episode number 1162. Women face obstacles in all industries, from the entry level to the C-suite. Any industry looking to fix its gender bias has to stop giving itself a free pass or hiding behind stated intentions that have no practical application. It's time to evaluate and then adopt procedures and programs to hire and support women in business. To that effect, I have author of The Future of Tech is Female, author Doug Branson, on the radio show here today. Doug, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to start with uh, maybe having you answer this question. Why does it matter to evaluate and adopt procedures and programs that lead to hiring more women and supporting and promoting more women in an industry? Well, I think that uh, one of the reasons is the promises have been held out to them for 40, 45 years, and, um, but not much has happened. Uh, we've had only glacial progress. Another thing is that so many people um, who work in the lower echelons of businesses are female, and they need role models. Another thing is that women are empirically demonstrated to be better judges of risk and have different perspectives, so it's avoidance of groupthink. And groupthink on a corporate board or among a group of executives can be fatal. I mean, the... uh, the Vietnam War and the Bay of Pigs demonstrate that. So um, those and other reasons, you know, a lot of people advocate the business case, too. I think the jury's still out on that, but uh, a lot of people think that the presence of women in corporate organizations, especially at the higher level, leads to increased profitability. Why do you say you think the jury is still out? Well, because all the studies uh, that are reviewed by people, I just did a program last Friday at George Washington University, and a number of the speakers reviewed these. And, of course, it's a, the studies show only correlation. They don't necessarily show causation. So if you have, uh, and they don't screen for what we call confounding events. Ooh. So you might have a greater number of women in an organization and the profits and revenues are increased say seven percent over the last year and there's a correlation of that with the installation of women but it's not necessarily proven causation so so there are people who are studying this very topic as it relates to business performance and impact but there were some what I think might be undeniable or immutable facts, which you started by saying, which is, I think, a very important one that, you know, people that are listening to our show today, Doug, are CEOs and business owners running uh, middle market companies across North America. I, I find it all too frequent where they're working hard to get consensus at the executive level, and unfortunately, it can lead to this disease, which I call groupthink, you know, where People abdicate their individual thinking in service of the leader or in the greater group. And so you're, you're arguing diversity at the most senior levels, at least on the dimension of sex, can help to have less groupthink in a leadership team? Yes. It can, uh, it can further all of those values I mentioned and some others. You know, I'm kind of a 60s liberal. Uh, you know, as I get older, I 
getting to the middle, as we all do. But I, I just focus on the social promise that's been held out. And another thing I find is that a lot of the businesses that do hire women are places that 40 years ago we would not have recommended women to go. Uh, oh, oil and gas, paint and chemicals, electric utilities, the CEO of Duke Power is female, the CEO of Sunoco Oil and Gas is female. And um, so I say, to some degree, go where they aren't. You know, for mm. young women, it's not for everybody, but if you have a engineering or a finance background, and I attribute that to so many of the men that are in control, the dominance, uh, have daughters, and they want to see women and, uh, and their own daughters have the same chance as the son would have. And uh, so it's very uneven. You know, you find the worst, the worst industry is information technology. Right. About 4.5% four, about four of the senior executives uh, are women. Uh, transportation is terrible. Airlines, truck lines... Railroads, it's about 7%. Financial services is terrible. It's about 11%. The big box retailers are very mixed. Um, forest products, unbelievably, I find, have a very good record in having women in senior positions and on their boards of directors. So um, it's, it's, quite, it's an uneven picture. It's not a great picture anywhere, but it's much better some places than it is in others. So we're talking with Doug Branson, and we're talking about his latest of many books, The Future of Tech is Female. So let me ask you, what was your inspiration for researching and writing your latest book? Well, first of all, I've done this for 20 years. I have uh, two prior books, one called uh, No Seat at the Table, How, how, gov how Governance Keeps Women Out of the Boardroom, and then another one called The Last Male Bastion, Gender and the CEO Suite. But I'm a father of daughters. I have two girls, and uh, so I want them to have the same chances that uh, a young man would have. And um, I had a colleague. Uh, I taught in Seattle for 20-some years before I came to Pitt. And I had a colleague out there who published an article in the early 90s in the Yale Law Journal. And she talked about how women speak and act in a different register. They don't use imperatives the way men do. They use a lot more hedges at the end of sentences like, are you sure about that or what do you think? And so she talked about women speaking and hearing in a different register as re responding very differently in criminal settings to advice and to warnings and to cautions given by interrogators. And I thought, well, that's the same thing in corporate governance. And sure enough, I find that a couple of the leading um, linguists, Robin Lakoff at Berkeley and Deborah Tannen at Georgetown, find that there's absolutely no correlation between speaking and acting in a slightly different register and the attributes that some dominants ascribed to women, like, oh, they're too emotional, hmm. or they're not analytical enough. There's no connection at all. And um, so that got me started to thinking, and that first chapter of the first book I wrote is entitled In a Different Register. Interesting. We're talking with Doug Branson. We're talking about his latest book, The Future of Tech is Female. You've written other books, too, that aren't on this subject, right, with your experience in law and the legal field. I know that you've written other books that are far afield, if you will, from the content of The Future of Tech is Female. 
I have. My wife thinks I'm a little nuts, I think, but I write about, I write baseball books. Yeah. Uh, I've written a lot of corporate governance. Uh, that's what I'm known for, corporate governance. Sure. I do a lot of work in Alaska Native corporations. That's just, I wrote an article in the UCLA, UCLA Law Review. 1979, and seldom has a academic well been drilled so deep. You know, I've been going up to Alaska for 30 years, and I've argued before the Alaska Supreme Court three or four times, and um, I've been up there a hundred times. I, I have yet to go up there as a tourist, though. I want to do that. <laughs> yes, you should. How did you end up in Pittsburgh teaching at that fine institution known as the University of Pittsburgh? Well, I have uh, very many uh, articulate and very intelligent graduates, ah. uh, and uh, I was recruited to take their first endowed chair uh, in the law school, and uh, my marriage was kind of breaking up, and um, and one of my daughters had moved to New York, so I just uh, interviewed here, and I interviewed several other places, and I, this is a very nice town. It's a, it's a, it's in, undergoing quite a. Bo- a bit of a boom right now, actually. And right. It, you know, it was one of the finalists for um, Amazon's uh, second city. So. Yeah, I, um, I have seen the transformation of Pittsburgh from a steel mill-driven economy to a technology, medical-driven, college, almost college town with the university system, Pitt, Carnegie Mellon, and others, Duquesne, that are in that area. Yes, it's not, there's no industry here anymore. It's been gone for 30 years, more, maybe more. Right. And in East Liberty and parts of Shadyside, they're building huge apartment complexes. We have a huge influx of techies into the city for Google, and uh, Uber was test driving its driverless cars here. A, a, a couple of uh, dynamic uh, business incubators. Um, so it's changed quite a bit from what it was it's changed not quite a bit completely from what it was four right. years ago. I, I think it's a testament to what civic leaders and, and industry can do together to recreate an economic base that's viable for the citizens. So yeah. that's great. All right. Well, we're talking with Doug Branson. We got a little bit off subject there. I really wanted to focus on your book, The Future of Tech is Female. Tell me about the title. How did you come up with that title? Well, yeah, when you publish books, you realize you don't have as much power over the title as you think. And that title was come out, came up by the editors of NYU Press. I use information technology more as, as an example than the objective of the book. And then I go on for 15 chapters and talk about various programs I've learned about from lecturing all over the world that U.S. corporations could at least discuss and maybe try out and uh, but they thought the editors thought that uh, the future of information of of tech is female i guess had more um, uh no pun intended sex appeal you know so they chose that title i did not okay i did, i agree with that i mean it was fine but so why do you believe so many leaders in various industries have kind of like this tin ear on the subject of truly committing to diversity in the workforce? Well, I think that uh, they believe that they are running meritocracies and that uh, the decisions and uh, thinking uh, that they prolong uh, are unchallengeable, immutable, but really they're doing what happened 50 years ago and 60 years ago. They're choosing people who look like themselves. 
um, 50 years ago, uh, it was it was pejoratively said that you had to be a 42 long to get promoted in a corporate setting. Sports metaphors were used. You had to be the quarterback. You had to be able to shoot the three. You had to be able to throw the knockout punch. You, you had to shop at Brooks Brothers and wear rep ties and go to the same clubs. Um, and 50 years later, like in information technology, it's the same thing but internal rather than external. I think the dominance in those industries choose people that look like they were 40 years ago, kind of geeky, nerdy, uh, into the you know nitty-gritty of uh, programming and workarounds and systems analysis so it not much has changed um, so that, and then the other thing I talk about in my book is is a very touchy subject but the h1b visa you know they're bringing hundreds of thousands of workers in computer programming and system planning all male from India and they're lobbying to have Congress enlarge the program uh, and they and they fudge it. I mean, they, they say there are only sixty five thousand. I think in my book I talk about in last year's statistics were available. There were one hundred and sixty five thousand of these visas granted, mostly to tech workers from India. So if you go to Seattle and you go through uh, the Denny Regrade, where Amazon has forty nine thousand people, they're all Indian. Well, I don't want to be xenophobic, and I, you know, I think that, no, but nobody has thought about how that development crowds out and eliminates opportunities for younger women hmm. and uh, and for minorities, racial minorities as well. Uh, yeah. So, so what advice do you give to other people, maybe even some in our audience, who feel like they could write a book but they haven't? successfully done it can you give any advice to those aspiring authors that are in the audience based on your you know track record well i can i read a lot of books about buy my books <laughs> at uh my own plug uh i work on things every day you know i mean i get up in the morning and i have some coffee and then i uh i i work on my writing every day hmm. and um i attend as many symposia and programs I've been very fortunate in my career. I taught corporate governance at the University of Melbourne for 15 years. I've taught in New Zealand seven times. I've taught in Hong Kong five or six times. I've given programs in Manila and Kuala Lumpur and Singapore and not so much in Europe, but some degree in Norway and England. And I benefit from all of that. You know, I'm gathering ideas that don't get much play here in the United States. That helped me form formulate ideas for my book. So working every day, um, going to as many programs and absorbing as much as you can, talking to people, listening to what they have to say. You know, I, I wonder if you knew the subject because you'd written two other books, but did you learn anything new or different about gender bias? Because a lot of what I've heard you say kind of, for me, fills in this, falls in this area of kind of bias thinking and that you didn't know prior to publishing this book? Well, that's a tough question. Yes, I submitted the book. MIT Press was going to publish it, and I had a couple reviews, and they said, who's the audience? And that got me thinking that the, the audience really is corporations. And in my prior works, I've always talked mostly, not exclusively, 
about aspiring women, but half of the equation uh, companies and companies that uh, would be employers. And there's almost no attention paid to that side. And companies for years and years now have gotten away with a lot of hot air. More recently, there are companies that push STEM education, but but the costs of STEM education are borne by colleges and universities and secondary schools, and the corporation's captive foundation may contribute a few uh, tens of thousands here and there. But uh, it's time that companies have the spotlight shown on them, and 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 so I learned that and 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 sharpened my pencil and and really shifted the focus even more dramatically upon companies. That's one thing that I learned in writing this book that maybe wasn't so prominent in the prior books. What 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 are the big ideas or a major takeaway that someone in our audience will get from investing the time to read your latest book? Well, I was at a cocktail party seven or eight years ago, and a CEO of a middle-sized, publicly-held company was talking to me, and he was very interested in this subject, and he said, now, I have an organization of, uh, you know, six or 700 people, and I have, uh, you know, roughly 40% of the people out there are women, and what message can I give them? And I said, I thought about it. I said, you, the message you have to send from the top is we treat everybody with dignity and respect, and we treat them equally. And the only exception to that is where there's a demonstrated biological difference. And that, for women, is childbearing, which is probably the most important thing that happens in our society, and child rearing. And we will make exceptions for that, and we will design programs like uh, off-ramps for women who want to take some time off, extended family leave programs, alumni programs. But other than that, we'll treat everybody with dignity, respect, and treat them equally. And I don't think that comes particularly from this book. That kind of runs through all of my books. That's kind of my bias. That's the way I was raised. Interesting. And if someone is interested in finding and purchasing and buying The Future of Tech is Female, Doug Branson, where would you suggest they go to buy your book? Amazon.com, uh, under my name, or The Future of Tech is Female. And um, it's also available at NYU Press. Um, they have a website. So if you have access to the Internet, you could go on uh, their website and order the book from there. Well, I want to thank you for uh, sharing a bit of your insights today. I found it fascinating for making the commitment to writing this book and continuing to study this subject. You are a part of the Critical Mass community and a friend of the program, Doug, and I want to thank you for your time here today to be on the show. Okay, great. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Bye. I'd like to thank our engineer, Paul Roberts, and our three producers, without whom we could not do this show, Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Haley Stern. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, that'd be the best way, kind of social media platform. Let's start with LinkedIn. I am Richard Franzi, spelled F-R-A-N-Z-I. And until our next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. 
with your host, Richard Franzi. 